If it's after lunch, I probably wouldn't have fed him to the tiger. I get a little ornery when I'm hungry, and timing is everything, people. That's why my sportsbook app has live in-game betting for football. I don't care if the game has already started. If the time to make your move is in the second half, go for it. Caesar's got you. Caesar likes to move freely. That's why I'm partial to the token. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome, everybody, to Garden of Doom. This is... Another great episode with one of our returning guests. This is Mog Morgan, uh, and he is an expert, I'll say, on all things Egypt, or a lot of things Egypt anyway. He's been on the show before. We did a show probably about six months ago, so maybe check that one out. Um, no, definitely check that one out. Uh, I've been introduced to him through the Nephilim Anthropology Conference, uh, and those of you who did listen about six or seven months ago will recall that uh, Mr. Morgan actually had not really thought about the overlap before. Um, and it's been six months, so we'll probably circle back to that uh, at the end. But the purpose of this show is to go through Egyptian mythology. Yes, when we were when I was a kid, there was an Isis cartoon, and probably most people have heard Ra, Osiris, and Isis, and Orion, and, and things like that. And, and there's tons of stuff attached to Egyptian mythology, and to extent, 
um, Greek mythology basically copied it. And of course, Roman mythology jumped on top of Greek mythology. And there's others too. There were in the Canaanites, there was, uh, there was overlapping religions just with different names. Um, and of course, there's also the legend of Atlantis, which, you know, ties deeply into the ages of Egypt. But I would like to introduce at this point, uh, Mog Morgan. So Mog, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Wonderful. Um, first of all, if you could just introduce yourself to the folks, those who didn't have the uh, didn't listen to the original show yet, but will, but just to give a brief bio of what you have done, your background, and and your projects that you're working on now. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great to be back. Um, biography, I suppose you'd say I I, I was writing something today. Uh, uh, a writer and a publisher, so I kind of. I suppose publishing publishing stuff in in the area that I like to write, so mainly in the area of the occult and uh, magic and and the occult. Personally, I I'm interested in as a as a writer in kind of uh, theology, I suppose, but pagan theology, especially from the Egyptian point of view. Uh, I've written a few books. Uh, the latest one. Kind of summarizes, kind of summarizes a lot of work that I've done over uh, the last twenty years, and it's just so it's quite handily called just Egyptian magic, really. Uh, and it kind of tells you everything you want to know, really, if you want to uh, practice Egyptian magic. So that's uh, that's quite a good indication of the sort of stuff I'm into. I'm I'm into uh, also into folklore, I suppose, but into Egyptian folklore. Uh, which I think is probably an unusual aspect of some of the work that I do is that I connect it with existing folkloric practices in Egypt today. Uh, not, not, which is again not usual. Is the fact the idea that some of the aspects of pharaonic magic do actually uh, never did quite go away; they continued. Uh, what is pharaonic magic? Well, pharaonic magic, for want of a better word, would be the the magic of the period of the pharaohs, which is the word that people use for the, the kings of, of Egypt. And, of course, that comes to an end, um, more or less, with the, uh, with the coming of the Romans. Uh, a few, maybe a few hundred years, you know, with the end of the Roman Empire especially. But, and, and then it becomes Christianity, and then eventually you get the... Um, the Islamic invasion, I suppose, or the the kind of come the coming of Islam into uh, in, into Egypt. So, and um, you have Coptic Christianity, which is a sort of an important branch of the uh, Christian Church, one of the oldest branches of the Christian Church, really. And in but both of those things, they both practice magic. Um, which survives. They practiced uh, the magic, most of the magic. They, they practiced a lot of magic, even in the Islamic world, and the Sufis and the Christians and the Coptics. And it's quite possible to connect the, the type of magic that's done by those later cultures with the stuff that was done in what I'd call the, the pharaonic period, the high culture of, of Egypt. In fact, there are lots of very, very interesting links. And they're still going on today. In fact, that's a... In, I mean, I suppose in terms of what the folk do, what the ordinary people uh, do, the empires come and go, but um, people... People sort of remain; their concerns remain the same, and so in the village culture, you, you get the same sort. Of, obviously, there's the thing of tomb raid in itself, and a big kind of thing in 
in, in certainly in the past in, in that area. So there's magic connected with that. Um, I have two questions for you. One is that uh, I know you said that the pharaohs ended sort of with the Roman houses, and 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 it's true that they did. Though, I, it, how much of an overlap? Uh, well, because the end really started with Alexander, because I mean, for generations, the pharaoh, the pharaoh houses were, they didn't even speak Egyptian, they, they spoke Greek. Uh, Cleopatra, I know, was, was very popular with the Egyptians because she actually bothered to learn their language, um, which may be the, the main reason why she's still re remembered and venerated. Uh, now, I know what you're saying, that the magic persisted. So, yeah. but the... the Real adoption or prevalent use of pharaonic magic uh, in Egypt and the area, because the borders obviously weren't the same as they are now, uh, sort of end with the you know, the Ptolemies, who were the, the powerhouse there? Or, no, or the I'd say it doesn't really end with them. Obviously, there's... Well, you know, there's this weird story about the last native, you say the native pharaoh, the last native pharaoh, native Egyptian pharaoh of Egypt, Nectanebo, he was, he was a magician. He's quite a good magician, really. He used a lot of uh, good, you know. He's sort of he was good at doing magic, if you like. Right, uh, not, not like the uh, good witch of the east. No, <laughs> no. So, and he used um, a lot of battle magic then, if you put it that way. So it, it is okay because the, the the Egyptian Empire, as was, is is under a lot of pressure. Right, from the surrounding uh, nations, uh, especially from Syria and uh, or the Syrian Empire and all this sort of stuff. And eventually, uh, they do kind of, they get conquered, as I say, and that's, I suppose you could say. So he's the last of the, last of the Egyptian, native Egyptian pharaohs, and he practiced magic and divination and studied just the magic, because there's not quite a lot about the magic that he did, because it survives in a weird way. Uh, you know, through archaeology and stuff and that. But obviously he kind of worked out from his divination, from the system that he was using, that the magic, he's had a number of notable successes, really big successes. He destroyed a whole army in the desert, which is weird. But uh, but he kind of got the the idea that he wasn't, the, the end was coming. It wasn't, the magic was going to fail and Egypt was going to be conquered again. Um it's and so he kind like of left. a lot of stories that magic that's has a, left the land, right? Uh, yeah, well, that's right. But the weird thing is, he left um, Egypt, so they said, according to the legends, and he went to Macedonia, and he became a, a jobbing astrologer in the court of Philip of Macedon, um, and of course, famously. Philip's wife was very interested in astrology and magic and all sorts of ecstatic cults, and she she became pregnant with Alexander the Great uh, in unusual circumstances as a result of some sort of ecstatic orgy, right? Probably. So legend has it that Alexander the Great was actually was actually the sort of descended from um, from Nectanebo. Right, but to, you know, the wrong side of the sheets, as they would say. Uh, <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Uh, yeah. So he, when Alexander did come come back, and the Greeks, uh, his Greek army, kind of reconquered uh, Egypt and uh, spelled the uh, the Persians. Uh, the first thing he did, because it was was to go to the Oracle at Siwa and say, 
you know, and get some sort of prognostication about whether the gods of Egypt accepted his his presence. And of course, they said, "Oh, you're you are an incarnation of the sun god Ra," which, of course, according to their own. Uh, secret t- stories. He really was because his mother, his mother was. They said, well, his mother was actually impregnated by, by the last pharaoh of, of Egypt. But also, it's interesting that see the Assyrians were much more, uh, the, they were much more destructive of Egyptian religion than the, than the Greeks, less respectful. In, in fact, I, one of the Assyrians actually killed the Apis bull to show how macho he was. He took this sacred animal from the temple and he killed it. Um, and that resulted in them, them, I suppose you should say, losing it in the end. So Alexander kind of knew all these stories and was quite interested. You could say he knew the, the, the propaganda value of these stories. So he made sure he got the Egyptian religion on side uh, by getting this. And maybe the priests themselves thought, uh, we should make sure. <laughs> well, it depends what you think. The oracle was very favourable to Alexander the, the the what we call Alexander the Great, and and maybe they you'd say well, there's a certain amount of manipulation in that, uh, because you know they weren't going to kind of say no, you're a load of crap, and uh, get out of our country or whatever. So, yeah, I suppose you would say. It's not a simple, right? There's a kind of love-hate relationship between the Greeks who eventually come to run Egypt. And uh, and I, I think that, that actually that period in terms of magic and culture is actually very, very creative. And there's lots of magic goes on for at least another thousand years in Egypt. Um, until the kind of you know, but it's, it doesn't really stop. That's the weird thing. It never really stops. You know, people, people who, well, it's only purists who would say that it's it stops. It transforms. People go on. Yeah, they they say. I just say people say Hellenistic. There's a sort of, sort of criticism. They say always oh, a sort of mix of things, but it's actually pretty good. You know, it's it's very creative. I think, I think I'm going to bring you back another time, if you're willing, for a show more on magic. We're getting a little bit afar. Though the story that you just told sounds a lot like others. I mean, you know, yeah. I guess we could talk about Jesus. You could talk about Gilgamesh, Perseus, Hercules or Heracles. Um, frankly, Noah. Uh, that sounds a lot like Noah, where Noah's father may have been one of the watchers and not, yeah. what was his father, Lamech? Lamech, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a lot of uh, part divine people who go on to be great leaders. But, uh, you know, sort of the whole thing about, you know, angel and divine blood uh, carrying on. You know, if anybody wants to read the Da Vinci Code, you, you, you know, we basically... I think you're right. Part, you never know what the truth is. Partly people with uncertain origins tend to have, make up, you know, which tends to be people who warlords who kind of certainly found themselves running a country tend to have these quite uh, preposterous in a way kind of uh, foundation stories. But who says they're preposterous? I mean, say that's you have to have it. North Korea uh, has it right now. Yeah, well, there you go. People, sorry, who has it right quite now? North Korea, right now. They they, they basically have copied the, the Pharaoh model and said that. Things and people descended from the Da Vinci Code. It's the royal family of France who probably their beginnings are, everybody's beginnings are obscure, really. 
course. As, uh, to use an Indian myth, no, you know, man's origin is like a river. You know? <laughs> Nobody knows really where you come from. And so people tend to develop these, 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 these stories of divine origins. And, you know, I'm not going to say they're, they're wrong. I mean, these are extraordinary people. Um, and as I say, in, in the case of Nectanevo, his magical techniques and stuff, it... It's, it's, it's something that I do actually study, in fact, because as a fair, the last magical operation failed when it, it, this is, he made this object for this uh, that would normally call the now, it's got a weird name, it's called the Naus of the Decades. So it's a kind of piece of decano, it's the earliest known astrological uh, horoscope in a way. Anyway, it obviously didn't work because it got smashed to bits. Uh, and thrown into the sea, which, but of course, from our point of view, that means it's, that's not the end of it, because then 2,000 years later, some somebody comes along and fishes this object out of the waters, and it tells this incredible story. Um, so of its destruction, yeah, it was destroyed, a magic failed, but then we, by, by, by weird things, this magic somehow resurfaces again. I, I find these stories completely fascinating, really. But so, anyway, that's still happening. People are, that, even, that, even that aspect of the magic, the magic of the Deccans, which is an Egyptian innovation that's incredibly old, right from the beginning, it, it goes into, everybody uses it then, the Greeks use it, the Arabs use it, uh, it's everywhere, it comes into astrology, and, and it's the same there. I, I, we just add that the piece of magic that I really like as well from Egypt is, see, we're talking about elite magic, but there's, as I say, there's the folk magic, there's the dance and the shamanic tradition within, for want of a better word, within Egypt, which is also incredibly old. Okay. Uh, but the oldest mythology in Egypt, the oldest depictions that you'll find from Egypt are of people dancing uh, in rock art in the desert from very, very early pre-dynastic stuff even. And that Let me ask you, magic um, question. never goes away. Everybody does that all the time now in Egypt. Let me ask you one question. I'm sorry, there seems to be a little bit of a lag uh, over the sky. But... Um, would an example of the magic, and this is the last thing on magic, then we'll dive into mythology, but is the curse of King Tut's tomb, is that an example of, of the magic that you speak of? Well, it's funny, someone asked me that the other day. The, what, the curse on the tomb. Um, obviously, the, the actual curse, it didn't really affect the Howard Carter, because Howard Carter lived a long life and everything, but uh, other people did suffer from that. It's... Obviously, to, to some extent, the curse was a bit of a media creation of the 1920s because the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb was a huge media story. It really did sell newspapers, so they kept that going, and to some extent, they developed it. But yeah, you, you'd have to say there is um, there is a, an idea that demons live in those pharaonic tombs. They, they're even called pharaonic satans or shaitans, rather. Uh, that live in the tombs are presumably there from pharaonic times to guard the, the treasure and the body. And you have to use special precautions, which are documented in Arab sources in order to... It's funny because the sources, the Arabs tell you where all the tre treasure is in these great manuals, and they give you all these rituals that you have to use in order to kind of fool this jinn that lives in the... 
in the tomb, uh, but at the same time they're telling you where the tombs are, which is very useful from an archaeological point of view. So, yeah, there is something in that, I think. Uh, but how, maybe Howard Carter had such a kind of strong persona, it didn't affect him. Or maybe he knew the counter magic, you know, or whatever. And it isn't quite as the media states it, you know, some of those things, things in the media uh, at the time in the 1920s, not quite right. Um, and to some extent, you'd have to say that the, the whole tradition of the mummies, the films, you know, the curse of the mummy and all that sort of stuff, it's a little bit guilt, archaeological guilt about the fact that they are, it's, 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 it is the, the archaeologists are kind of desecrating tombs, really. Uh, so the way they get round it is by demonising the, the, the occupants of the tomb. So, so it's a complicated issue. There's, there's something in it. There's definitely something in it. But there's also an element of, uh, of guilt in, in, involved in that. Uh, so, 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 yeah, no, there's your answer. I think it's, it's probably true, really. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, great. All right, well, let's get into the mythology and let's start with the sort of the common mythology that everybody is at least vaguely familiar with. And as you pointed out, you you found an even older story. So I'm going to let you take over, probably without any interruption. <laughs> but I guess we're starting with uh, the you know, the Egyptian version of the Titans or the pre-Titans or the proto-Titans, and then leading to Horus or whatever the origin story is. So, Mr. Morgan, please take take it from you. Well, I mean the the. the... The thing is, Jeff, you you you, you can't you you're not, not going to be able to get away from the subject of magic, because all of this stuff is all magic is the Egyptian religion, really, uh, and uh, an awful lot of the myths are about about the uh, the origin of magic, one way or another, and and how you do it, and and the magical power of all the different figures. So we ne- we won't be able to completely put that. We can't avoid it. With Egypt, it's, it's, it's just there. It's always there, you know, in all the stories. Well, I suppose, yeah, I would, the most famous story is the kind of monomyth, if you like, what Joseph Campbell called the monomyth about Egypt, which is the kind of fam- family story. In Egyptian mythology, they reckon that it's easier to... The, the, the gods usually come in little collectives, you know, they're either in pairs or... But usually in little family groups... Um, and you know that that's e- that's easier to understand in a way. Uh, I mean, there's a question. There's a question: is which comes first? Are the Egyptians uh, is Egyptian mythology just echoing uh, human society uh, with its kings and queens, or it, is that an idea that starts in the divine realm? Um, which might sound a bit weird, what, what I'm saying there, but but actually, mythology. The well, what is a mythology anyway? I'm going to put the light on. Myth is, in my view, in the way I look at this, myth is memory. Myth, myth is another form of memory. Uh, people think of myth as something sort of fictional in a way, as something kind of different to anything else, but it actually is. 
it is uh, some sort of memory thing from from for a long time ago. So that's that's the kind of way I'm looking at myth. I actually specialize in called archaeological. Uh, the archaeology of memories <laughs> make it very grand. Anyway, so you've got what seems like a very old myth, which it is an old myth. You know, it's um, it's it's as old as Egypt itself. You'd think of this family that develops of these. Well, the funny thing is that so you've got you've got the sun god, right? The two the two major elements of Egyptian mythology, if you like, are the cult of the sun god and the worship of the sun, which is probably probably one of the oldest myths really uh, in Egypt. And the other one is the is the myth of Osiris, who is the god of the underworld. So it's the, it's to do with with death, with the mysteries of death. Uh, and there's an idea where where does religion in itself or where does any mythology where does it start in any culture and one possibility is it starts with the things that happen when some when someone dies uh, with sort of rituals that, that take place because you know in a way we take it for granted now because you know why when someone dies you know we take we, we, we take quite a lot of care about it but you can think, I wonder why you do. Uh, why Why do people, oh, it's a good idea to step back and say, well, why do we bother? Why don't we just phone up the council or the local authority and say, oh, someone's died. Can you can you come and, can you come and collect it next Thursday or something? But we don't, you know, we, we, it's, it's a very special thing. And you can, it's very important stage in culture when, when people start noticing that people are taking care over the death. Uh, over over the, the dead and this is uh, developing a myth of uh, of another place of, a, of an underworld so there's those are the two myths the myths of Osiris and the myths of, of the sun god Ra and uh, somehow or others they get uh, connected together um, or they overlap with each other and they're very you know they're, they're, there's also some reasons why it's, it's difficult to disentangle them as well but those are the two major myths and the myth of Osiris is this kind of very, very unusual myth in that you have a, a god who dies or is killed by one of, by his brother or one of the members of the other members of the family, which is the sort of thing that can, as we say, which can happen in families. And it certainly happens in Egyptian families all the time that sort of relatives decided that, that they wanted to have a go at being in charge, so they kind of... Um, they 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 assassinate the person who's who's supposed to be there, so essentially that that kind of happens and that myth of Osiris. So Osiris is already a day in a way that the, the only thing you know about Osiris is that he gets killed. There isn't really any other stories about Osiris of him of before he was not much anyway. It's all in the lead up to. To, to this one big moment in his life when his brother kills him. Uh, like the Cain and Abel myth, I suppose people say it's probably parallel to that. And, and unusually, the, he, he suffers this sort of death from his brother. The, the, the other gods, his wife, right, uh, the goddess Isis, has, uh, has to intervene in this process to... Um, Make sure he gets, first of all, he gets a proper burial, but, but as we know, then to kind of somehow bring him back to life for a short period of time um, so that he can, 
you know, engender the next generation so that the kingship, the, the succession of kings and queens and all within that, that culture continues because he hasn't, he hasn't managed to do that at that stage. So um, more uh, Jesus than Lazarus. Well, the Lazarus myth, as I say, that's uh, kind of the Jesus and the Lazarus myth is probably connected with it, isn't it? This idea of uh, somehow being able to bring the dead back to life. Um, you know, it is an idea that Jesus comes back, even if it's only for a short time, or, or spirit. So that's, he's supposed to be, Osiris is supposed to be the origin of that. Um, I mean, I suppose you'd have to say, so that an awful lot of an Egyptian religion and uh, I'd say magic is focused on that process of bringing the body back to life uh, and uh, huge secrets connected with that. Um, and, and that's a major part of the cult, which was funny enough as we'd speak, uh, coming up to Halloween and all that sort of stuff now. I mean, I, maybe, I know there's not going to be broadcast at Halloween, but it's, it's the time of year when they did celebrate this huge mystery cult connected with the god Osiris. Uh, and most of the details of that are not known, but you, you've got these incredible temple structures, uh, underground sort of uh, mystery structures, really, in which one of the, he's drowned in one version of the, the killing, in which they obviously seem to reenact that. Anyway, she assembles all because he's drowned, Osiris is drowned, but he's also, that's not enough for his brother Set, right, who, who does the, this business. He kind of wants to make sure of it. And uh, so he, he kind of kills him again, or he chops him up into bits and scatters all the bits all over the place and feeds some of them to animals and whatever, all to make it really difficult for anybody to kind of have a proper funeral, basically. Uh, uh, sort of rivalry. <laughs> you will, uh, yeah. But it's well, but it's it's a it's a weird process. This uh, because also the de you see the decapitation of the dead. Well, it's obviously in very very ancient times that that's a sort of honourable thing to do. It sounds weird to us, but the, the people who came before Egypt, the, they did they took the body, they did chop the body up into bits. Um, especially the head, and uh, they did all sorts of strange things, that, right, that we would find quite strange. So in some, it's it's like I say, in Egyptian culture, to give someone a coffin is a, is an honourable thing. It's good to give, you give it, so it, it's to chop them up and give them this, this funeral. So it's this very ambiguous action. But one way or another, she kind of, uh, finds the parts and brings him back to life. And as is well known, the phallus has been eaten by a fish, which is a special type of fish, which is symbolic, another form of the god that's killed him. Uh, so I don't think they ever find that part of it. Um, and, and so there's a, a sexual mystery there. Um, and this gets raised later as well, with because then you've got Horus, who, because he's been conceived in this strange manner is is a, is a little bit of a weakling uh as a child he certainly needs the protection of his mother he's a bit of a mother's boy and everything and he's always been accused by his uncle who who's set who's still around you see having killed his brother he takes over uh in in the story um and 
So, so Horus is a, is a bit like the Hamlet figure, which the Hamlet myth is based on the Egyptian myth, who is not right in the head and kind of a bit weak in the body and not really a good warrior. And then always pointing out, oh, well, he's, how do you know who his father is anyway? You know, it's a bit uncertain. All right, you're saying his father managed to conceive him even though he was dead uh, by some weird process and say, oh, well, nobody's going to believe that. Uh, so eventually there's going to be trouble. And of course, then there's the, the tribunal scene. Uh, when so, so then it's like the wheel of the year, if you like, then the process continues and the man, the boy becomes a man, uh, like as Hamlet does, and has to fulfill his destiny, which is to avenge his father and to take over, which is, uh, again, this is, this is a very primary myth. And then that's, re, that's enacted in... In mythology, but it's enacted in every in Egypt in everybody's life. Uh, the funeral, the kind of it's almost like the. It's said that during the funeral rites, that the son had the son who is responsible for the funeral of his father. When the father dies, his father has to appear to him in a dream and sort of pass the, the, pass the kind of chalice, if you like, of life or, on to him. You know, to say that you are my successor. In one way, okay. Let's back up just a bit and let's start with what is the main panoply? Like who who would be their king of the gods? Who are the major gods under the king of the gods? And and what are they? What are their? What are they in charge of? The major god, as I said, the major god is the, is probably the sun god in one form or another, and all the other gods are emanations of his. Yeah. Uh, so you would get you would get Ra or Amon Ra or, or, or but basically this is there, there are lot, there's no one system in Egypt there are lots of different uh, pantheons or, or or versions of this one but they're all a little bit sim simple uh, similar of a of a major sun god who gives birth to a pair, right? A man and a woman, if you like, uh, kind of ancestors, the primitive ancestors, whether that's uh, Shu and Tefnun, uh, and then and then Ge and Geba knew it. Now, for some reason or other, uh, they're not supposed to. Geba knew it. These famous, uh, this again is refers to the sun and the earth, right? The, the, sorry, not the sun, the sky and the earth. The sky mother and the earth father uh, are, the, are the one generation. And the problem with them is, from the sun god Ra's point of view, is that they like sex too much. Uh, and they have sex for such a long period of time and such a noisy way that the rather sun god kind of says, well, you can have sex as much as you like, but you're not going to, you're never going to have any children. Right? Nothing, you never have any offspring from it. On no day of the year right, will you uh, ever give, will you ever conceive. Um, anyway, they find a worker, and the god Thoth, right, who is very much connected with wisdom and the calendar and stars and stuff, another important deity in the system. Gets a work gets a workaround for this. <laughs> he comes to a, he comes to a solution which is the famous thing. Uh, you so you get three hundred sixty days in the year, 
Uh, and he says, well, we'll add five extra days and so you can give birth on those five days. Hence, five other gods have gone, but they are called the accursed gods, the cursed gods, because they're born on the accursed days. And that's Isis, Osiris, Seth, and uh, Nephis, and another god called Horus, just to make things uh, Horus the Elder, who is the, some, some, almost like a vampire, a vampire deity. So the five gods that people know so well, their beginnings are kind of quite ill-omened in lots of ways, and hence the... Uh, they're the cursed gods and they kind of fight and one of them kills the other and all the rest. But whereas before you'd had these nice neat pairs of Shu and Tefnot getting you in, just two, one, one man, one woman, they have uh, kind of quite a, a, an untidy bunch of them really, two, two pairs of gods two, uh, plus another one. So it's very unstable, very cursed, but a, very, very interesting and very human in a way. The thing about all these myths is they're very linked with... Uh, these are not the... The weird thing is these are not the oldest myths in Egypt. Uh, they, these, these are kind of... In terms of Egyptian... Sort of, these are newcomers. <laughs> Even though these, these things existed uh, are written about when they made the pyramids, which are the earliest writing. So it's a weird thing. So on. Sorry. Again, there's a, I know, it's confusing. It's, I don't, I don't it's intuitive, isn't it? You know. Well, it almost is. And so I'm, I'm wondering if there's a parallel. Now, I know the Greek myths sort of, whenever they originated, they originated around the same time uh, as each other. But it contained simultaneously in time. But the Greek gods that we know of had their parents, the Titans, yeah. They famously warred against the Titanocomy or something like that. Yeah. Um, but even the Titans had parents too. So uh, the Greeks stole a lot from the Egyptians. So I guess if you look at that parallel, it probably isn't that odd that there's an older Egyptian pantheon, though this is the first time I'm hearing about it, but yeah. it doesn't shock me. Well, one, I guess you forewarned me. Um, and I said in the intro of the show, but I've never heard about uh, any of it. But I'm curious, it, the major gods in Egypt that we know about, not not these older gods, is there, if somebody told me, and you you know the it's Reverend Jim Williamson, he said that there's always sort of nine major gods. Is, is that is that true? Were there nine major gods in, in the, I'll just call it the traditional Egyptian? Right. In in the pantheon, I think that I, I mean probably I've given you about nine. There's about nine there. You know, if you think about it, you've got uh, Ra and uh, Shu and Tefnut. That's three, and uh, Gebenuit. That's that's five, and then you've got five others. So this it, it's about what's that ten or something? Nine or ten? That makes one pantheon, but that's. And those same gods get kind of rearranged into... So I think probably more than... Slightly more than nine, really, the 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 Ennead, right? It could... But it depends where you came from in Egypt, really. But so there are, there are other gods, because as I say, that was the ones I've mentioned are about nine or ten. Then Thoth has to kind of play a role in that, and then you've got the kind of Patar and all these other, other ones and other versions... 
you, you could get away with it maybe would say Isis has got, you could say that uh, all the goddesses are a bit like her. Uh, but probably that's that's not fair either. So I, th I think you'd have to say there's a, there's an awful lot of them, really. It's probably, but you can simplify it to different pantheons according to the different temples in Egypt. And the, and the story that we've just told is probably the most common one, the most popular pantheon in Egypt. But there are others, that's true. But, yeah, you can boil it down to that. I know we always want... But, you know, it's the same. People always say that about Indian myth as well. They've got so many gods and goddesses and stuff. Can you simplify it? But then life is very complicated. I think that's what the Egyptians would say. You can't really represent them, uh, such a complicated uh, system as, uh, as the world we live in with just such, such a few deities. You can do the major brushstrokes, but they always have to uh, introduce it. And then you've got... In a way, the nameless entities, all these small entities, the demons, there's thousands of them uh, by name, which again is it seems unfair, but uh, that's the world is complicated. The world is complicated. You got you can't get away from it really. Uh, but that would that would get you a long way. That particular system. Well, uh, I'll tell you. I mean, and I don't want to repeat things on prior shows, so I would commend people to listen to. Uh, maybe the sci-fi and scripture show with Reverend Jim Williamson, and you can hear what his his theory or his belief is and what he says. Um, and and before we move on, so if I remember correctly, it was tied to the number of stars in the constellation Orion, which then pointed to the North Star. And I believe that back then they thought Venus was a star, and that's where the nine came from. I don't know if there's any truth to that. The other thing, but one thing before we move on that I would ask you to do is you you told us that Ra is the sun god. You've told us that Osiris is the god of death. If you could just go through the other major gods that everyone knows and say, you know, we all know Athena was the, the goddess of wisdom, but she was also like the goddess of tactics. And, you know, like they sort of have these gods that have sort of like weird things they're in charge of that, that seem uh, discombobulated a little bit. If you could just go yeah. through what the the major gods were in charge of, and and then we'll move on to the uh, the older story, which is new to me and probably new to ninety nine percent of the people out there. Okay, well, the major gods of the major gods, I think we kind of mentioned them. You've got Set, right? Uh, the god Set, who in in really you say Set is the indigenous god. And Set is the oldest, it's probably the oldest uh, entity within Egypt, very, very old. It's impossible to say how old it is. Uh, but in terms of the story, he has this function of being a kind of, uh, well, all, all, all of these major gods are all emanations of the sun god, right? So you, you can see how you could turn this into a monotheistic system, if you like, a system with almost one god at the top of a kind of pyramid of, uh, of deities, if you like, if you want to do it that way, because you can say that all the major gods are, in fact, emanations from the sun god anyway. And if, uh, uh, so he emanates, he creates the god Set uh, uh, as his, pa his passion, if you like, his violent side, uh, on the basis that there's a need for that kind of violence, if you like, or that passion and ambiguity, the chaos. Uh, Archangel Michael. 
they they need that kind of thing yeah everybody needs something like that and it's like if you've got this agricultural cycle in which uh, uh which is another aspect of osiris uh, where, where the the agricultural cycle requires that there's a harvest uh, or, or uh, and that might be the harvesting of the animals that you've kind of uh, gathered some god has to be responsible for that process of killing and harvesting if you like you could put it that way somebody has to do it osiris has to die because he's part of the agricultural cycle as well and everybody has to die that's part of the natural cycle everybody knows that uh, so that means somebody has to be responsible for that so death uh, so seth has that role uh, of kind of of doing the doing the business, if you like, <laughs> Horus is we've talked about as as the he's the kind of usually called the royal god. He's the kind of personification of uh, kingship, which again is and a lot of these myths come kingship. The idea of kings and queens is is again not the original way that the Egyptian society was organised. Uh, hence, the myths all have to be rewritten at some stage to kind of say the divine right of kings, and Horus is connected with that, so he's usually called the royal god, and usually connected with uh, the aristocracy and all the rest. Uh, Osiris, people say Osiris, I think it was quite interesting, they call him the people's god, a popular deity, uh, because he's to do with the underworld and death, and that is a, a very, very popular thing. Well, everybody has to die, uh, you know, the, Everybody knows this. So the god of death is extremely popular, and the god of the of the underworld and of the journey that people take when they die. Um, that's Osiris's role, but that's also connected with the parallel of uh, of agriculture, as we've said, of the kind of the sowing and of the the seed from one year is taken to the to the next year and sown at a certain time of year, and it it, it comes into its own, but sooner or later it has to be cut down and uh, then you get things like the first fruits and uh, the sign and, and the, the seed itself it has to be discovered in the underworld, the seed of the for the next year has to be kind of discovered. All these different things are reflected in Osiris's myth of the underworld. Um, you've got rather I said the, the sun god, but he's also connected with the state itself, i.e. the whole, whole political system. Uh, therefore, the tribunal of Ra, the legal system, that's, that's Ra's role. But also this cycle of birth and death happens in the, in the god Ra as well. He's the sort of model of the human soul, uh, which goes to sleep every night and some mysterious point we kind of wake up again. Um, so the cycle is repeated every night and uh, throughout the course of the year. But this is also what holds a society together, which is Ra. He's to do with the state. Um, you've got then you've got the other gods. Those are the major ones, I think. You've got Isis, of course, as the great goddess, <coughs> uh, as a major one, and she kind of um, we'd say. Ten other great gods are connected with that god. As I say, you got Min, who's extremely old, like the life force, the god of the life force, is represented really by uh, the erection, you know, the god with who's always erect. 
Um, and you see that all over Egypt even today, and it's a very popular image there, in fact. Uh, you've got Thoth, the, the, some sort of personification of, of wisdom and of knowledge and of the alphabet. You've got Anubis, which is this originally a jackal deity that used to eat the dead because the dead used to be left in the desert and be eaten by jackals. And he, But once they stop doing that, um, he becomes more of a protector of the dead and to do with um, mummification. You've got Patar, who is the kind of creator, like the, the creator in a sense of actually physically makes things. Uh, We've got Khonsu, the moon god, also very important. Soka, these are Soka is a bit is another underworld, very ancient underworld god to do with agriculture. And um, I think you're probably getting the idea. You've got quite a lot there, haven't you? Really. Um, that and then we could we could move on to minor gods. We've got the the god, but let's say the goddesses alongside them. Isis, we've mentioned already. Hathor was a very older form of of, uh, of, of Isis, or prehistoric really form of the uh, of the goddess um, that whose role Isis takes on, and of course the other great goddess is uh, the goddess of the of the stars, Nuit, who gives birth. It's the divine mother, the mother goddess, the star goddess who gives birth to everybody. Um, I think that's most of them, really. There's a, lot, there's a few other ones, you know. There's, there's probably another dozen. Then you have foreign deities that the Egyptians like. Uh, and of course, what else have you got? You can add deified kings and all the rest of it. But I think that's the main brushstrokes, really. The idea that they come from observing the stars is not a bad idea, really. I think you'd probably end up with more than eight. I think there are more than eight constellations within the Egyptian star map. But the idea that even the language itself is based on observing the it's almost like the, the cycle, the passion, if you like, the divine passion we talked about of Osiris being killed by Set is played out in the stars because Orion, which is the god Osiris, but also uh, <coughs> Horus' his son, it kind of change, one changes into the other all the time. It's not always in the sky. It's a constellation that is said to die in the sense that it disappears from the sky for a long period of time and then it's reborn again. So some people say that that model of uh, of the gods coming and going and being born and is played out is, is something you could actually see in the sky. Uh, the constellation Ursa Major, which is always in the sky, um, is the constellation of God set. So that's why sometimes you say he's, he's an indigenous god. And all of the stars together make the body of the star goddess. Anyway, there you go. That's that's enough. There's a lot <laughs> of stars. <laughs> okay, it's well, a very sophisticated and interesting system that uh, tells a kind of it tells a, a, a it teaches us a lot about ourselves. Uh, especially if you use the the system that they use to kind of explore this. In any right. well, well, if people, you know, wondering where someone got the creativity for, like a show like Game of Thrones, where there was all this court intrigue between major houses and minor houses, uh, you know, and thought it was terribly original. Not to not to disrespect the story. I think the story is great. I love the books. I love the show until the end. But 
like you said, this kind of thing plays out in, in Shakespeare and mythology and probably in, in pre-mythology as well. Powerful families do terrible things to each other. <laughs> and then the Habsburgs and the Tudors and the Windsors, and, and maybe it's still continuing. But anyway, uh, you know, the, the conspiracy around uh, Princess Diana. But anyway, you promised uh, pre pre uh, the Egyptian equivalent, I'll just call it the Titans because I don't know any way better to put it. But uh, let, let's hear this new information to me anyway. What happened before all of this? Because yes. I mean, that's the other. The weird thing is, even though this story is very, very old, it's it's it's, it's found elements of it are found on written on the walls of the pyramids, which are kind of wherever they wherever I don't know how you want to date those, but let's say two two and a half thousand years BC, let's say for the Great Pyramids and whatever, and there's a text there, so that this story is already, and that's the first written records. This story is always already in creation. But even so, it's thought to be a kind of almost... Uh, some people say it's not true myth. They say it's not true myth. It's a kind of piece of priestly ideology, priestly spin doctrine uh, to make way for a, this new cult of Osiris and uh, Horus and the, and the kings. So people didn't have kings before. Uh, the oldest... Strangely enough, right, even in the Atlantis myth itself, the Atlantis myth tells you one of the, that the, the gods were sort of democratic uh, because they don't fight each other to work out who's going to have which bit of the, the world. They draw lots, which is sort of like a sort of democracy, really. And that's... So before all this happened, and, and this is known from archaeology, really, rather than from text... Uh, there was an awful lot of things going on. <laughs> and funny enough, we talked right at the end of Egyptian culture, uh, when the Egyptian, when the Greeks and the, then the Romans were running the show, uh, the Egyptian priests realized that this culture wasn't going to last for very much longer. Uh, their oracles told them that. So they thought they'd better write down the important stuff. Uh, while the Romans and the Greeks were still paying for it. <laughs> so they built these the late period temples that were financed by the Greeks and the Romans, uh, the, uh, which people often ignore. Uh, they record some of the oldest myths. So the, the priests thought, we better record what happened before all everything happened. We better record the oldest myths, really, uh, of a time before Horus and uh, Ra and uh, all these other ones, when the names of the gods are not known. Uh, strange enough, it's the, and it's, so strange if you know this is this is the nameless eon. Uh, it's actually referred to in Egyptian texts on temple walls as the nameless eon when a previous creation. Uh, existed uh, a, pre a previous culture existed within Egypt, uh, or another set another set of gods and goddesses whose names are not recorded, because uh, partly because there was a natural disaster, uh, the evidence of which you can see all over Egypt, uh, you know, in in terms of the geology and the the archaeology. Uh, so, but this 
It's funny, this natural disaster, this enormous flood probably, um, it happened at a bad time anyway. It happened at a time when there was this great battle taking place between uh, this previous generation of gods, <coughs> whose names we don't really know, uh, and they were destroyed in a colossal ba battle by an entity, by a, a colossal serpent entity, who, who does actually play a role in later Egyptian uh, myth, which is this, which we haven't mentioned so far really, which is this entity um, called Apophis or Apep, or the, the, that's unlikely to be their real name, but uh, it's yeah, that sounds real. Uh, and this, this, this is she is also known as the mother of all curses. Uh, so, and she was obviously active, right, in the kind of very, very prehistory of Egypt, according to their own records. So, this previous creation of uh, of an island, which is called the Island of the Trampoline, right, that is named after the battle that took place there. Uh, the, all of this myth is recorded in uh, in the Egyptian mythology. So they're all destroyed. The previous generation gods are destroyed in a great battle with this with a uh, ancestor of a pep in a way, uh, and they lie. Their bodies lie because they're colossal entities. They, they lie kind of scattered around the island of of Trampoline, and that's and then the next generation of gods, the gods who get the names such as the hawk and uh, and the sun god and all, all that, so they're not even called Horus then. They come and they find the remains of the previous creation and they kind of, they can't resurrect it because these gods are dead. So this is funny, they're, they're, the gods have died, they're, but they're still warm, if you like. There's still some sort of energy in these gods, so they are buried under the temples, uh, which, and to, to some extent, there's, there's some basis in that. The weird thing is that the, the Egyptians, the, they, they had this weird thing, they rewrote out their own prehistory lots and lots of times, but they also, if they wanted to build a temple, like the famous temple of Philae, of, of goddess Isis of Philae, uh, and of goddess Satet, we, again, we haven't really mentioned, but the archaeologists show, right, that the temple is actually built on a much older foundation, which is not like um, the uh, Egyptian temples that we all know. It's much more prehistoric or primeval in its way, much more natural, natural structures. But the, the key thing is that the, uh, and also the, the, the old, it's funny enough, the oldest, the oldest piece of religious iconography, the oldest religious statue probably in the world, but uh, certainly within Egypt, is a, a statue of the god Min, this phallic god. Um, and and this was discovered also under the floor of a temple. So it's obviously a, something that the Egyptians did. They never threw anything away. Uh, or in, in, in a they never threw things away carelessly. They buried it under the floor, which is like the very, very ancient prehistoric idea that you bury your ancestors under the floor of your house. Uh, and, and you know, so the archaeology shows that this really did, did happen, right? That, that, that there are these, A, that there are really these structures underneath the Egyptian temples. And also, if there wasn't one there, the Egyptians, just to make it 
complicated. They made it look as if it was there. So the famous Temple of Osiris, which uh, at uh, Abydos, has a structure, an enormous ritual structure of very, very obscure and weird usage. But it also is built in such a way to make it look as if, as they were building it, they encountered problems because they suddenly discovered the foundations of an older building. So they kind of have to work their way around it. But that, that, there is, there are the sort of uh, remains of very, very old structures there. But the thing that they say is there, this is a double, double blind with Egyptians. They like to play games with your head. But this, this particular game of saying that there's something underneath the temple was is obviously an important part of their mythology, and that is how the that is what a temple is. The tem temple is in fact a structure built upon the foundations of a, of an older race of beings uh, whose names are not known to us, uh, but who created, who invented magic really. Uh, Hence, the magic in practice in temples or in, in connection with temples is based on the fact that there is something underneath. There's a, it's, it's like a black box, uh, I call it. Sometimes it's a, a very elaborate structure. And part of its structure is the fact that the ancestors are buried underneath the temple. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting theme, right? An unexplored theme in connection with it is explored to some extent. People have realised that and are always looking for these these things, but they don't always like what they find when they find them. So that is the oldest. So it, it, Egyptian temples, oh, they're old as they are. They they have to be built on this uh, ancient structure, and all religion has to kind of their religion has to work in that way. Anyway, there you go. Um, I have a question for you. Um, the, I'm just calling them the old ones because there's no other name for them. Were they given a name later? And how did, what was the transition between this, the era of the old ones and the Ra, Osiris, Isis, Pantheon? Is it, is there anything, is there any literature or recordings on the pyramids that, that cross this bridge? Or do you think that the flood or whatever the natural disaster was, sort of just stopped one and then started well, anew. As I say, it's recorded in uh, primarily in the Temple of Edfu, at, um, the Temple of Horus at Edfu, uh, which is a rather wonderful temple, has, which is completely covered in, uh, in writing uh, and for all sorts of incredible books of various sorts. And one of the books that is kind of written on the wall, which is literally what they did, tells this story uh, it doesn't tell the whole story. It's extracting it from an, from some old book, by the look of it. Uh, and it doesn't tell you. It tells you the names of two of the two of the beings, uh, which are just syllables, really. Uh, if I say that, they are, you're going to think it's it's a bit weird. But or two representatives of the old of the old ones are uh, uh, and. Wow, there you go. That's what those are the names are. They turn up and they kind of get, but they're not, they're not the dead. They tell the story. So, all sorts of entities turn up. They don't have, you don't know what the names are, but what you do know is they're not given the names of the later gods. But they're, they're, the later gods say, it's, it's almost like you see in the story of Noah, Noah's Ark. 
there's this incident in which they're, they're floating on this sea, right? Because as I say, the battle takes place, this colossal battle takes place in Egypt, uh, and then the flood hits uh, in some sort of prehistoric moment and destroys all the records, and eventually the flood subsides and they find all the, the remains of the battle. Well, in the story of Noah, they're floating in the ark, <coughs> And they're, weak. They're, they're looking for signs of land, aren't they? And the first sign of land is when a, a bird, which is like a Horus figure, a hawk, essentially, uh, though I think it's said to be a dove, but I think you'd say it's probably, in the Egyptian version, it's a hawk, brings uh, a piece of vegetation uh, that shows that the plants must be growing, must have started to grow again. It was an olive branch, an olive tree. It was something. It was some sort of sign of vegetation, and this would be the same in in the Egyptian myth. The first, there's something grows, so the land has suddenly re-emerged from below the waters, and uh, reeds have begun to grow, like the sort of flower reeds, and the 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 hawk, the primary hawk, can land on on the on the reed. So it's the perch of the of the hawk. But as I say, at that stage, it isn't called Horus. But then later times, obviously, this is a myth recorded in the Temple of Horus. At some point, the name Horus, which doesn't mean frustration, it doesn't mean hawk. Uh, it means face. But that's one of the w weird twists of fate. So the, late, the, the, the famous gods come after this process, uh, after this discovery. This, this, and, and the design of the temples, the design of all the temples, is kind of based on this. You wouldn't, nobody knew this, right, why the Egyptian temples look the way they do. They had some ideas. Only, only recently the archaeologists have discovered that this myth is true, of, of what, the, what is at the core of the Egyptian temple, what is the heart of it, is this temporary structure, really, a temporary reed hut that is, was, was built uh, on the island of, Trample, uh, island of Trampling or the island of conflict. Uh, on the bones, basically, of, of these nameless entities who exist now still below, below the, the, the floors of Egyptian temples. So, yeah, now I can't really offer you any names, but you can learn about them by... because that's where the design of the Egyptian temple comes from. And the Egyptian temples play, do all sorts of weird things. They don't just, it's not just the shape of them. They kind of point at things in the, in the, in the environment. You know, they point at, they're orientated in such a way that if you know the, the secret, you'll see that it's pointing to something a few miles away on the horizon, which will often turn out to be something that's prehistoric. So it's not alignment to the stars, it's something that... It does, no, it does all that as well. It has alignments to the stars, all sorts of very complicated buildings, and they, they tell all sorts of stories. They teach you, they teach you... Basically, the, all, all of the temples teach people the mythology. They teach people the uh, very ancient history of the human race from the Egyptian point of view. Uh, and they do that by pointing to the stars, but also by pointing to things in the environment that um, they might not have noticed, entrances to the underworld, all sorts of things. And exploring the temples, it, 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 that's, how they, that's how the Egyptians encoded their knowledge 
to, to, to the future is, is through that. Because they knew they were coming to an end, but they also knew that they would rise again. You know, because they prophesied that. They prophesied that, it, that Egypt, the te- which they call the temple of the world, uh, meaning it encodes the secrets of the world from their point of view then, put it that way, you don't have to say everybody's world, but it's certainly most people acknowledge the, the secrets of the ancient history of humanity is encoded in the Egyptian temples and Egyptian mythology, if you know how to understand it. And that's the continual interest of it, because it's relevant, it has lessons for us. Um, I'm not saying I know all of what they are, but um, it does have certain lessons about the ecology and about life and about how to practice magic, really, uh, how to transcend uh, or to wake up, how to wake up. All of that is encoded in the temples in one way or another. Anyway, big subject of that. Um, you said earlier, a few minutes earlier, that, that the only names that were known were one syllables and one was wa. Do you think that, there, that it's a coincidence that the sort of the king of the next pantheon was also one syllable, Ra? Um, yeah, well, there you go. So the, the, the very own ancient language, it just, uh, the, that's true, isn't it? The very proto-hieroglyphs are kind of just simple, just a few kind of uh, proto-words. I mean, that, that's it. The Egyptian language is, is like that. It's... it's, it's uh, it's like an alphabet of desire to use another thing it's a, a set of symbols that kind of somehow relate to natural forces in the people but yeah you're right i thought you were going to say as well that the two of the nephilim the names of two of the nephilim are also like that they're very very short syllables i think maybe this is i don't know it is wait it this is also connected with shamanism i think and uh, when people go into trance and uh take strange drugs and do this sort of ancient religious practice, they speak in tongues, and that means, from the Egyptian point of view, they speak in sort of simple phrases that are just very intentional. They're just, their emotions, they're pure emotions in one way or another. But yeah, no, I think I think you've got a point there. Yeah, no, I don't actually find anything named after that. strange. Maybe he's named after that entity, it's true. Because the first, those first pharaohs, are, uh, <coughs> their citadel is the citadel of the hawk, which is not the citadel of, of uh, Horus at all. It's about 15 kilometers away from the temple um, of Edfu, and it's a major prehistoric archaeological site at the moment. Uh, but it's a site where... Uh, there's something to do with the unification of Egypt. And, you know, pr- probably from most people's point of view, if they went there, it's just a lot of bumps in in the in the desert. You know, you, you need a lot of imagination to bring it to life. But from those bumps and post holes, they, they realised that, 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 that what the primitive form of the temple was. Strangely enough, it's, it would be a bit like the Ark of the Covenant type thing. It's a portable shrine. Because the people were wandering, were moving around with this portable, huge portable shrine, uh, like a tent-like structure, and the remains of that are at the what they call the citadel of the hawk um, in in Upper Egypt. But yeah, no, I think the first pharaoh comes from that era. Uh, it's a guy who kind of 
was a warrior. He was obviously a warrior, um, a warrior king who was supposed to have unified the whole of Egypt. It was probably just unified the area he was in, um, which would be enough. Yeah, I actually personally think that a lot of the things that we encounter, the overlaps with shamanism and, you know, Akashic Record and, and spiritualism, souls, whatever whatever we want to do, these are all the same. It's just the words that different peoples use are different and make it confusing. What's the difference between a golem and Enkidu? Um, you know, and also that there doesn't have to be one. Why, why does there have to be one Atlantis or one city like that. Even in the legend of Atlantis, they were they were defeated by a rival culture to the east. Um, we have Lemuria and Mu. I mean, you know, the, you just pointed out that there's an Egyptian tent light box with magical properties, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. Why need there have been only one at a time? I, I'm, I don't think that's true. I mean, it could be the same thing, or the, or it could be uh, the secrets of the ancient world. Of course, they are. You know, it's the stellar religion, as people call it, you know, the before writing that existed. But uh, doesn't, you can't sort of just make it part of one, because nation states don't exist then anyway. You know, it's not it's not the same sort of culture that you're dealing with. It's interesting that the Atlantis myth as well, that they're overcome by a, a, a they're submerged, aren't they? You could say they're overcome by a flood. Well, they, they could have been, but they lost a war, and you know maybe it was the same people from the Veda, or the what's that book, the Maharabada, uh, and the Vinaya, and some something. I, I'm gonna anyway. Enough about that. Yeah. But you touched on a great segue, which was into the Nephilim, and you had told me in, in pre-production that in this past six months, from the first time we met each other to now, you've you've noticed a lot of different parallels, and since that is sort of my obsession. Um, without actually doing much studying of my own, I, I would really love to hear, you know, sort of your thoughts and ideas on that. And then I'm going to let you plug all your stuff um, because <laughs> I promised you Absolutely. about think... an hour, and we've already gotten an hour and ten minutes. So. Okay, enough is enough, really. Well, no, I think uh, that, that last bit, well, to, well, that ancient myth, uh, which is called the mythological origin of the Egyptian temple. Put it that way. Well, to give it a great big word, the mythological origin of the Egyptian temple, the story of how the Egyptian, why there are Egyptian temples, why the first building comes into existence, uh, and why does magic come into the world? That that myth, which is uh, told on the wall of the Temple of Horus at Edfu, uh, it connects with the Myth of Atlantis, of course, but that essentially, I think that is the the source of the that is the parallel. That's the I'm not saying it's, it's the sort. In, in a way, the myth of the Nephilim is put is kind of put together from Egyptian re records anyway, in in some sense, because the Bible is, um, or certainly the translation of the Hebrew Bible into into Greek takes place in Egypt. Uh, and the sources that they that they were using at the time would have been sources that they're getting from Egyptian priests, whatever. And I explore that in some detail in the thing. Uh, and so, so if you like, put it not not to take it over and say that that's not a unique myth, but the the even though they, you could say the the 
there's a there's an equivalent of the of the nephilim within the egyptian pantheon which are called the shem tui which are these ancient giant um entities which we know of as a class of beings called the shem tui which means the submerged ones and the submerged ones it's not such a big stretch, I think, go from the submerged ones to the idea of the Nephilim as the kind of the fallen ones. Uh, I think it's a kind of similar idea, really. They're sort of somehow uh, out of place, uh, one way or another. So, yeah, I think that's, that's where I've gone with this now, really. I've kind of think, think, uh, thinking of the myth of the Nephilim as essentially recording an Egyptian myth, which... I always saw that when I first read it. Oh, it reads just like an like this of these old myths from, from Egypt of the, of the nameless ones. And so I've kind of pieced that together a bit more, really. And they do the same sorts of things. The Sheptui do the same sort of things. They teach magic uh, be, because the earlier the destruction, the process of destruction was. Um, the rebuilding uses a different process, right, in order to not get... Because you think, well, uh, if this great entity is going to come along and uh, destroy everything, uh, what's to stop it coming along again? Which, of course, it, it does. And the, the only defence uh, against that is the creation of this new technology, which is called magic. And the Nephilim had this role, don't they, of, of teaching teaching magic to their to their offspring, basically, uh, one way or another. So there are all sorts of parallels, I think. So, yeah. I don't, I don't want to stay at this stage until I kind of record it there. But yeah, there's, there's the version of the myth. It could easily have been... Uh, plus, it's the, the Nephilim sort of functions as the origin of demons. Yes. I think that's right. You know, given that within Judaism, they're looking for a way... At, at the time they're writing that, the, the 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 idea of demons is taken as self-evidently the case. Everybody accepts it. Every all cultures around them accept the idea that there's other class of entities, uh, which one which the Greeks call demons, um, and you know. It, they, they seem to be interacting in people's lives, and people still believe that wide, widely in uh, in Egypt, and, it, and with all sorts of good reasons. So the story of the Nephilim is, I think I'm right at that stage within Judaism. There isn't um, there isn't that much written uh, uh, until that, that point about what what these entities are. They probably have an understanding of it. So the Nephilim is their version of the explanation of how this. Other sort of class of beings come into the world of demons, uh, and and the, the utility is they, they do all sorts of useful things as well as being quite destructive and whatever. So that's what I'm articulating. And there are a couple uh, of Sean's notes to the audience. Yeah. Uh, there's an episode I forget when, which number it is, but it's called Kabbalah simply. And I found an Orthodox rabbi who's actually from Mexico but lives in Israel who talked to me about Kabbalah and also did cover uh, the the orthodox position on the Nephilim, so you can listen to that episode. And in a few weeks, we're recording right now October 10th, so I don't know when that show is going to drop vis-a-vis this one, but there's going to be another show with non-rabbinical, but two different very religious Jews who are also going to talk about the Nephilim and angels and demons in Jewish culture. And I have a feeling that they're going to come at it from different perspectives. One is 
I think Hasidic. I'm not sure. The other is very religious, but also, you know, uh, you know, secular. I know him from professions. So anyway, so look for those shows to come, uh, which will come at it from uh, the Jewish perspective. But you can listen right now to the Kabbalah one as well. And it's towards the end if you don't want to, if you're not interested in Kabbalah, you can sort of skip ahead until we move on to sort of the Nephilim and angels and demons and heaven and hell and that sort of thing. Um, right. So thank yeah, no, it's fun. I, I love learning about other religions and theologies. And of course, I try to compare them all because of you know what I said earlier. It's not, it doesn't always work that well, but sometimes it does. I, I was trying to ask earlier, but then I realized I was speaking over you, so I shut up. But you talk about the giants, and lots of people talk about the giants, and some people talk about the giants literally, and others it's more figurative, and other it's sort of in between. You know, you talk about the giants, you know, 30 feet, 15 feet, others you talk, you're seven and a half, eight, 10 feet, or they're progressively getting smaller as they interbreed more and more with, with Homo sapiens sapien. Um, but but there's also in Genesis is they call them the hero the the great men of renown the heroes of old something like that. So I'm wondering if in Egyptian we're talking about giants stature you know 10 15 30 feet high or just you know the the warlords the the, the toughest of the tough. Look, I think you could find you can find all of those things there. Right? In in this one of the records that I looked at. Uh, of this written by an Egyptian priest, which is uh, Manotho, uh, Manotho, he's man of Thoth. He writes this history of of Egypt and, uh, uh, and a king list and everything, which is the thing that people really use. Um, he often refers to the size of the pharaohs. You know, he says how tall they were. And by modern standards, they're very, very tall, right? More than seven foot tall, according to his records. So there's that aspect to it. There's an idea that, yeah, that the pharaohs, Ramesses and all the rest, they're supposed to be tall, I suppose, because they're warrior kings and everything. So there's that. There's, there's, but there's a whole dynamic of, um, of, as I say, size matters, really, within the Egyptian culture, the kind of building of the colossal statues. I mean, one of the, I showed an image. If you look at the front of the... Temple of uh, this temple I've been talking about of uh, Horus Edfu. There, there is actually Horus is shown. Horus is shown together with the god Set in the form of hippopotamus, which is this enormous creature, um, which is an avatar of Set. And Horus is shown as a giant, and um, the hippopotamus god Set is shown as this very tiny little thing. Um, and we kind of think, well, <laughs> but that's obviously important, right, to depict the, 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 the size relationship between them. This is an important aspect of the, of the religious culture and the magic, uh, the fact that they do depict so many things of colossal size and so many other things as kind of ridiculously small, uh, so that you you definitely get that dynamic. There's an idea that maybe in shamanism or in trance work uh, this this issue comes up it certainly comes up in magic all the time the dynamic of uh, large and small and how to kind of reduce something in size and how to make something uh, bigger in, in some sort of imaginative sense so yeah no the, that dynamic and and uh, whilst we're talking about it you may have seen 
Yeah, it's worth exploring this. <laughs> Recently, you see, the, this creature, the set creature, which is depicted so small, is actually, historically, in terms of the, uh, the geology of Egypt, is actually a very, very large creature. It's a colossal creature. It's almost like a survival of the, of the dinosaurs. And they found recently the bones of uh, the, what they call the black bones of set, uh, which are these fossilized remains that were collected by the Egyptians themselves. This is weird. I guess, Egyptians collected I guess. fossil remains. Yeah. I guess. Is it? Is it? Was it the carnivorous, carnivorous land walking whale that they found? That's right. The carnivorous land walking whale, which they wrongly named after Anubis, but it should be Set. It's the black bones of Set, which are stored in temples, uh, in tombs rather. The backfill of tombs is at, uh, in certain places for ritual reasons. Are the black bones of Set, um, and those black bones, which are in tons and tons of these things. Uh, so much that they don't know what to do and they dig them out. They're not just bones of hippopotamuses, they're fossilized bones of this of this ancient enormous creature. So every aspect of this of this of the issue of giants that is a, a very much a kind of thing that, that happened when they translated the Bible into into Greek. Well, it's, an easy it's there. You'll find it there within the Egyptian culture. It's all around them. You don't have to look outside, right, to find why why the giant thing is so important uh, in the story. Well, I, I could easily see why if they came across these these bones, and this was in the Sahara, where you don't think about water, but the, the these fossils were forty three million years old, or give or take. So, uh, chances are other people found them, and you could see why the closest thing that they had any exposure to in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa was the hippopotamus. Because it, even though there were teeth, it wasn't a crocodile, it wasn't a, you know, an alligator because the legs were too long. It wasn't a rhino because there were no horns. So you could see why the thing they translated it to was a hippopotamus. Well, there you go. It's some sort of, it's an answer. it is an ancestor of the hippopotamus as far as I know. Uh, ancestor to us too. <laughs> well, they certainly thought it was. Uh, well, okay, ancestor of all of us, but whatever. The, I think there's another interesting issue that ancient people collected fossils. Even pre, even Stone Age people, even people thousands of years old, they collected fossils. Uh, so they and put them in a ritual context. They kind of put them in their temples and in their tombs and connected them with this colossal entity called Set. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it's all there. I love it. I, I, I love all this stuff. It's just amazing. Um, I, I promised you uh, that, that we, we would try to keep it to an hour. It's been an hour and 20 minutes, so right, I'm a liar. Part, part of that's on you, but please promote your stuff. Let people know where they can find you, the names of your book or books, your newsletter. I subscribe to it. It's Yeah, yeah you can do that. Well, I as I say, I work, I, I work and run this company called Mandrake, uh, which so you, you can certainly look for the website of that. Um, but the book I, I really like at the moment, I must say, I've read, uh, I mentioned it before, I've done the book Egyptian Magic. So that's easy enough to find, isn't it? You know, just the Egyptian magic. This is kind of me, really. So I think in order to really understand all the mythology and everything, you really do need to kind of study it. Egyptian magic, but also it's got quite a lot of, I hope, a certain amount of philosophy in this or ideas, not to put you off, you know. 
of meaning. I think it's important to think this is relevant. So hopefully that's my master work. And I've also done a kind of um, this thing that I call the demonic calendar. There's a mega version of that, which is the which is the demonic calendar of ancient Egypt. So it's like their kind of ritual, you know, if you like, the system of demons that assisted in, and they probably are more demons than they had gods, really, to be honest. There are so many of them. But anyway, this is a particular astrological sequence of demons, uh, which lends itself to that. So do check that out. Um, and, and the other books as well. I mean, they say the, the other major book is they say if you want to kind of really get to grips with Egyptian religion is the book on the, the Amduat, which we've just done, which is, which is not my work, but I'm kind of quite proud to have published it. Because it does tell you how. I just want to make sure that people know what the Amduat is. A-M-D-U-A-T. And yeah. it was published by uh, right. my mind. So yeah. and that just means what is what is in the duat, if you like, or what is in the underworld, right? But there's a lot. <laughs> a big, big, thick book. But essentially, that journey through the underworld. Well, you, 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 you just caused yourself a follow-up question because I know in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Book of Enoch, I think Azazel was the uh, the the angel that was leading the the, the fallen ones and i think raphael was the archangel which was sent to stop him i'm going to give him a sex agenda and he shoved him not in the underworld but he shoved him in some place called duadel d-u-a-d-e-l and this is am duat so we've got the d-u-a in both places that can't be a coincidence well, no, that's it. that makes you wonder, doesn't it? I, I say that's a whole other ball game, isn't it? Because some of those people were called the Gnostic Setians, um, one of the most important uh, groups amongst the Gnostics was a group of Setians. But it's not the Egyptian set, apparently. It's well, it's a biblical set, uh, and apparently there is no connection between them. But uh, who knows? Right? It's never really been explored that much, but it's certainly tantalizing and interesting material. But yeah, they the got story in the world. These are the key things you have to, to, to do. But do check out the books. And it, uh, yeah, if you find a website, you can uh, subscribe to the newsletter so you get to hear about other projects, of which there's, uh, I think there's too many to mention, really, uh, <clears throat> at the moment, including all this Taoist stuff that we've suddenly been fortunate enough to be channeling. Um, major sort of piece on Chinese medicine, the Chinese magic, really, and uh, Taoism that uh, has never been explored in such detail before. So, yeah, no, come, come and join the newsletter and uh, let's see what's coming. And the next one has got a very, very interesting piece by Jan Fries, <laughs> Illustrated Journey. Yeah, this is a quiet treat. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mog. We're going to keep in touch. We're going to have you on again when the, when the next books are out, uh, certainly if you like. And uh, maybe I'll uh, we'll do an entire show on magic. And I know at some point we talked about numerology as well, but we'll, we'll connect offline on that. Everyone, check out his, his, his book that he wrote and the books that he uh, published. And certainly check out The Mandrake. Um, it, it's very interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, follow Mog wherever you can. He's on Twitter. Uh, pretty responsive guy, actually very responsive. Um, so, I don't know. I, I thank you so much. Uh, uh, oh, 
and the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. Uh, folks, check that out. There's going to be DVDs for sale and or they might do it in an e-file. I'm not sure, but um, Mog has a presentation from this year and last year. I think they're both this calendar year. One, I believe, was the first one was April, and then this one was October 2nd, so you may want to check those out. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, I guess I have to pick one. I guess you'd pick the, the more recent one. And I have very greedy aspirations about the more recent one because the more people who buy that, the stronger the chances that I get flown to the UK next year to to attend, uh, which is not a big deal to to Mon because he's in the UK. Um, but uh, but still, I mean, the the allure of getting some sort of compensation for something that I think we both love in in different degrees is amazing. So help us out, folks. Uh, do, if, and if you don't love me, love Mog. So, <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for coming once again to the Garden of Doom. You are in. You have an open invitation. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> thank you. All right. Take care now. And folks, we will listen to you. You'll listen to us next week. I, I would say see you next week, but you're not going to see me. <laughs> take care, Mog. Ch cheers to, and good luck to everyone over there in Britain. Uh, stand up to you. <laughs>